late night Christmas Eve service. We've been having this for a number of years. I don't know, five years maybe, give or take. One, maybe six. 11.30 p.m., Christmas Eve, December 24th. And this year it's on a Saturday night. Um, The music is uh, just simply going to be a blessing. You heard the Sisters Ensemble, nine young ladies, three sets of sisters, and they're going to be sharing in much of the service on December 24th, be sharing from the Word of God. It's a blessed time together. Put that down on the calendar. Invite family. Matter of fact, we usually have more outsiders than we do Red Bridges because folks uh, bring their families, and we've got one family that uh, brings people from uh, way north of the river every year and because uh, they receive so much from that service. Well, if you turn to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Today we begin a month-long series of Christmas messages. All month of December I'm going to be sharing on Sunday morning in this series. And I've titled this series, Meditations on the Incarnation. That's the title of the series. And there will be four messages, each with a, a subtitle. But Meditations on the Incarnation. And I first preached... This series, well, I say this series, it's, going to, it's taken from this series, but uh, I've reworked it, I've, uh, I've restudied it. But 10 years ago, in December of 1995, I first brought this series, and um, I've, not, uh, I've not spoke on it, I don't guess, since then. And in fact, I've really not done a lengthy focus on the uh, incarnation, that is, uh, God taking on human flesh. I've not really done a lengthy series in a long time on this, and so... We're going to spend the whole month on the incarnation, which is unique to Christianity. Only to Christianity do we have God becoming man. In all other world religions, we have man seeking to reach God, seeking to come to some kind of paradise or enlightenment through his own effort, through his own understanding, through some strategy that is man-made. Only in Christianity Is there God stooping down to capture sinful man? And the way he does that is that God becomes a man. And so it ought not come as any surprise that God would give very specific prophecy written hundreds, if not thousands of years ahead of time before the actual occurrence. It also ought not come as any surprise that Satan, our arch enemy, uh, would try to block God's path through the fulfillment of this incarnation. Since God is going to come and be man and live a perfect life uh, and ultimately to die to pay uh, sin's price, it it follows that Satan would not want him to do that. I appreciate uh, the words that... uh, uh, Christian and Kristen uh, saying that uh, the one that you'll deliver will soon deliver you. That is profound. And that, that is really the Christmas story. The one who is the God man one day is going to be the uh, Lamb of God, the Redeemer, the one who will bear the weight of um, the penalty of sins. And so by the end of this message, I hope and my desire is that believers would be strengthened in their faith and to be more convinced of who he is uh, to the degree that it would just be bubbling out all over um, those around you during this Christmas season. And that if you're here as an unbeliever, uh, God would convict and convince you of what the real issue 
of the, of the Christmas story is, uh, and you would know the Lordship of Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through verse 38, as we consider uh, meditations on the incarnation concerning specific prophecies. Luke 1, 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou who art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered in her mind what manner of greeting this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be? Seeing I know not of man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth also hath conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. This text is prophetic in that the angel Gabriel told Mary what things were going to happen to her before they in fact happened. And much of what the angel said was information, was data, which had been previously predicted hundreds, again, if not thousands of years earlier. And so when specific prophecy is fulfilled, there's a term given in theology uh, that's called um, uh, apologetics, that is giving a defense for the faith. When a specific prophecy is fulfilled, it adds even more credibility in the eyes of those to, uh, who are understanding it to the truthfulness of God's word. And so relative to the incarnation, there is a specific prophecy, and we're going to look at three particular examples of that. The first thing, if you would do, is turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and we'll see that Genesis 3.15 concerns the what of the incarnation. What is it? And, uh, and what are we to make of it? The first book in the Bible, Genesis and chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3 and verse 15 concerns the what of the incarnation or of God becoming man. It says, and, and God is speaking to Adam and Eve, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman I'm talking to Satan, I should say, and between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head. That is, her seed um, shall bruise thy head, crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise or clip his heel. This verse, Genesis 3.15, um, is known as the protavangelium. Protavangelium, or prota or pro is the first, and euangelion is the good message. And so this is known as the first gospel or the beginning of the good news. And, and one might ask, well, what is the good news? What is good that is written here? Well, that born of a woman 
um, that is, from a human, there would be one who would come who would crush the head of Satan. Now, you remember earlier in chapter three, how Satan came in the form of a serpent and he t- attempted uh, Eve and, uh, and she um, fell and, and, uh, and brought her husband in as well. And so man fell into depravity. And the word from the Lord is there would come one from a woman who would crush the head of Satan. We know it's Satan because Revelation 12, 9 says, identifies Satan as that serpent. Adam and Eve had a perfect standing before God. And, and when the sin came in, they, uh, they uh, fell from grace. They became sinners and a curse was pronounced. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, you can see it. God told Adam, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it, that is, out of the ground wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And so death was going to visit the human race, and death was going to visit everyone because of this sin. But folks, God is rich in mercy. And even though uh, there was death and there was curse and there was a, um, a separation, which was noted in this chapter, mingled in with all that, flavoring all of that is the mercy of God. And God's saying that there's going to, uh, there's going to, right now is going to begin a countdown. And there's going to, uh, in time, there's going to be one who will come, who will come from a woman and he will defeat Satan. And in fact, we know that that happened. And it's described in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when it says that when the fullness of time was come. What's the fullness of time? In God's timetable, when he said, okay, now is the time. When the fullness of time was come, we know it is Christmas. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. That is those who were under the curse of the law, which they had broken. It tells us the what of the incarnation, the plan of God that Satan would um, one day be crushed. And of course, he would seek to short circuit that. Uh, he was given this plan. Uh, he was given uh, some of the, the what of what was going to happen. Your head is going to be crushed. You're going to injure him. You're going to clip his heel, but he's going to crush your head. There's going to be redemption. There's going to be deliverance one day from the seed of the woman. So what's Satan naturally thinking? I had better do something about this. I had better um, uh, plug in to what's going on and pay attention so that I can short circuit God's plan. So we'll look at chapter four immediately, just as soon as Adam and Eve turn around, it says in verse one, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bore his brother, just almost like in no time, Abel and Abel was the keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So here's Satan watching Adam and Eve uh, who are expelled from the garden, recognizing uh, uh, God and Satan knows the trustworthiness of the word of God, knows that God had said, There's going to be one, a a man who's going to come from you, the seed of the woman who's going to crush my head. I'd better get busy and, and, and leap ahead and make sure that this doesn't happen. So what does Satan do? He gets into the heart of Cain and he tempts, uh, he makes Cain jealous. He tempts him. Cain ends up murdering his brother. Okay, that takes care of Abel. Don't have to worry about Abel. He's not going to crush my head. And now Cain uh, is a murderer and he's being expelled from the presence of God. Certainly he is not a candidate either. What Satan didn't understand and what God knew all along is that the Messiah, the God man was going to come through the godly line of Seth. 
not of Cain and Abel. Look at chapter four, verses 25 and 26. Chapter four and verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, or the appointed one, or the anointed one. For God said, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so prayer and crying out to God and, in, and, and experiencing that, that uh, spiritual intimacy with the creator happened as a result of Seth and the line of Seth, ultimately culminating in the birth of Christ thousands of years later. That's the what of the incarnation. What has happened and what did it ultimately accomplish? The Redeemer. The Redeemer was provided. So the one that Mary delivered was going to one day, very soon, deliver her by crushing the head of the serpent. At the crucifixion, his heel was clipped. The, the, the heel, that is, um, he was injured only to show himself triumphant at the resurrection. God knows what he is doing and he has put things in order just as he wanted so that it would play out just as he needs it to and wants it to. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, that is the beginning of the good news, is a prophecy, a specific prophecy given thousands of years before it was ever fulfilled. Secondly, we have another prophecy that is quite profound, and it's found in Micah 5 and verse 2, and it concerns the where of the incarnation. God was very specific in this as well. If you look at Micah, it's past the, the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's past that, and it's in about the middle of the minor prophets. It's right after Jonah. Uh, you got Jonah, and then you have Micah. And right uh, after Micah comes Nahum. So Micah chapter five, a very specific prophecy about the where of the incarnation regarding the coming of Christ, where it was going to be fulfilled. Micah chapter five and verse two had to do with the birthplace of the ruler, the where the incarnation would take place. As you're looking for Micah chapter five and verse two, Micah was written to Judah, that is the part of the nation which was in the southern part, written about 700 B.C. So this is 700 years before it would actually happen. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, and he identifies four particular things about the where of the incarnation. Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, that is, out of that town, Shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth or whose existence has been from old, from everlasting? Four things I want you to consider about the where of the incarnation or about Bethlehem. First of all, it was a specific city. Notice the first phrase in there. It says, but thou Bethlehem. And then do you have another word there? Ephrathah. Do you have that in your translation? I hope that you do. That is giving much specificity uh, to uh, this particular city. You say, well, what difference does it make? Well, you, you ought to know uh, as well as anyone in the world because uh, how many times 
When you say you're from Kansas City, uh, folks from uh, New York or folks from California say, well, how long have you lived in Kansas? Or do you know Dorothy while you've been living in Kansas? And I say, I don't live in Kansas. I've never lived in Kansas. Thank you very much. Well, Kansas City, Kansas, isn't there? It, yeah, there is one of those. It's a, it's a little podunk city north of what? No. Uh, <laughs> but you've, have you ever had that happen? Do you folks immediately think that you live in Kansas? Uh, sorry, Joe and Pam. I, I know there are some of you all who live over there. I understand that. Most of us live in misery, uh, Missouri. And, uh, and, but yet, you know, it's that kind of an idea. There are two Kansas cities. Well, there were two Bethlehems. As a matter of fact, it's a very specific mention here because it's Bethlehem Ephrathah. He wasn't just born anywhere. He was born in this particular Bethlehem, which was in the south. It's way down south and south and west of Jerusalem. There was another Bethlehem, which was much more noteworthy up in Galilee. Hmm. Mary and Joseph were living in Galilee. You see, if the angel would have said, go to Bethlehem, they would have gone just around the corner. They would have gone to the Bethlehem right up in there. They would have gone to Grandview or, or Belton or Raymore, something like that. They would not have gone way to the other side of the city if we, uh, by virtue or by relative to where we are right now. You all follow what I'm saying? It was this particular Bethlehem where they were to go. Luke 2, 4 says that Mary and Joseph were already in the north in Galilee, but they were to travel south and go down to Bethlehem, Ephrathah, so that the prophecy would be fulfilled exactly. Not just a general word, but a very specific prophecy. Folks, this is the word of God. You can read it. You can trust it. You can uh, base your life upon the principles of the word of God. It will not fail you. It's a very specific city. And then it's an insignificant city. That is also noteworthy. It's noteworthy about how insignificant it is. It would be like saying that, okay, we're going to have a king um, and uh, he is going to be born just, you know, in some little remote, just a, just hardly even a, a spot on the road, hardly noticeable. That's what it says here in our text in Micah 5 two. I'm not making it up. It's saying, even though you are little among all of the thousands of villages of all of the little remote places, even though you're little by those standards, I'm going to bring a ruler out of you, Bethlehem, you Bethlehem Ephrathah in the south. It's an insignificant city. Yet, even though it was hardly noticeable, there was one thing that rang in the ears of the people in that day. And that is, it was the city of David. It's where King David was born, according to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, King David didn't stay there. Uh, he, it wasn't like he uh, set up shop there. He was the king. He ruled and reigned from Jerusalem and, 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 and traveled around to the bigger cities. And, and all. It was his birthplace, though. And they knew Bethlehem for that reason. But there was going to be one who was going to be come from there who was going to make this little insignificant spot on the road. You hardly even noticed it didn't even have a gas station kind of a thing. It was going to make this very significant and very well known. Now that's a specific prophecy. If you're going to be a king, you'd be born in Rome. Of course, maybe Athens, possibly Jerusalem, but you wouldn't be born in Bethlehem. I mean, they don't have anything in Bethlehem and let alone be able to handle the entourage of a king. But though you be little among all the villages, yet out of you, there's going to be a ruler come forth who, by the way, his goings forth have been forever. Thirdly, about this where, 
It's a chosen city. Yet out of thee, God is one who makes choices. And Bethlehem was chosen as the city where God the Son would be clothed in humanity. So his birthplace was not an accident. God was working history, moving history. So at the time Messiah was going to come, there would be a young lady, a godly, faith-filled, God-fearing, wholesome young lady, and a young man who had impeccable character. Um, They would be raised up uh, just at about the time where it was time for them to be married. And it would just so happen that the birthplace was back in this other town. Even though they were living way north, living long, long way away, the birthplace was at this particular time. And it would just so happen that... An an evil emperor would be raised up and would decree that there would be a tax put upon the people. And you have to register in your hometown so that we can make sure that we get every one of you and we get all the tax money that's coming our way. It's a chosen city and God meant for it to happen that way. Aren't you thankful for the Roman IRS back in that day who said, this is what you're going to do. And Joseph, as a godly young man, said, we are going to yield to government authority when it doesn't violate a moral principle. So he said, "Okay, we need to pack up and we need to head on down to Bethlehem Ephrathah. Well, Bethlehem is right here. It's just no, no, not that Bethlehem, not Bethlehem in Galilee, but Bethlehem in Judah, where I was born and where I need to register a very specific prophecy fulfilled just as God said it would be. And then it was a blessed city, a blessed city. He shall come forth unto me. That's to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. No greater blessing upon any city in history than to be able to claim. Well, think about this. To be able to claim God as one of your citizens. God is one of the residents of your town. Um, no city in, um, in history really can do this. For this little baby has always been, he is eternal. And this where, the specificity of where, was fulfilled to the nth degree. Now for the meat of the message. And that is the third point. Isaiah seven fourteen. If you'd look back to your left, back to the major prophets. Isaiah, major only because of the length of the book. Isaiah 7.14, we say major and minor prophets, that's not speaking of the importance of the, of the work or of the credibility of the work or the inspiration. It's simply talking about the length or the quantity of the work. Do you all understand that that's what that means? Amen? Okay, turn to the major prophet of Isaiah and chapter 7 and verse 14 concerns the how of the incarnation. How did it come to pass? What was the mechanism that God used to bring the incarnation to pass? Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What is the mechanism that God is going to use? First of all, the situation. The situation What is going on here? Well, the kingdom, as you know, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two two kingdoms, really. It was the northern kingdom comprising the ten northern tribes known as Israel and the southern kingdom, which which divided after Solomon, uh, composed of the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the situation 
was this, Syria and Israel, that is the northern kingdom and the pagan nation of Syria. And by the way, Syria is still a difficult situation, uh, parenthetically, but it was difficult back in that day. Syria and Israel had formed an alliance. Uh, the, the, uh, the ungodly folks up in northern, the northern kingdom of Israel had hooked up with the, uh, the pagans of Syria and said, let's go, uh, let's expand our kingdom. Judah belongs to us anyway. Help us get Judah back. And so King Ahaz of, um, of Judah got word that, um, that uh, Syria and Israel were going to come swooping down and take them. So what does Ahaz do? Instead of crying out to God initially, he calls upon the Assyrian king for help. That's the context of chapter uh, 7. And King Ahaz of Judah says, hey, uh, uh, king of Assyria, uh, Syria and Israel are going to come and get us. Would you please ally with us and be our friend and help us? But God intervened and told Isaiah um, to tell King Ahaz, don't you fret. God is going to take care of his faithful remnant. OK, how is he going to do it? How is he going to ultimately deliver his faithful remnant? That's the situation. And, and secondly, the sign. Now look in verse 14 for the sign that it says, therefore, the Lord himself, he's not going to send an angel. Um, he's not going to uh, um, send some other kind of thing. He's not going to just write about it. But God himself is going to deliver this sign. And the way he did it is he actually took on human form. Notice it says in verse seven um, or verse 14, um, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. By the way, the word you is plural. Yet he was only talking to King Ahaz, but yet by extension, by virtue of the plurality of that particular pronoun, we know that it was meant for all who would read and believe. And so the Lord has given you in South Kansas City in the 21st century. He's given you a sign today. And what is that side? It says, behold. And that word behold is a word to arrest attention. It's a very strong word. It's saying, pay attention, look up, pay attention to this. I'm giving you a sign. I want you to really lock into this. Behold. And then it says, the virgin. Now that's a very specific Hebrew word used only nine times in the Old Testament. And in all cases, without exception, unequivocally, it has to do with being hidden or unconcealed or unavailable really is the idea. It's even used of God himself in Psalm 10 and verse one, when it says that God is hiding himself. And so it's, it's the word Alma, A-L-M-A-H, uh, if you use the, uh, in the English transliteration of it. And so it's the word for virgin or the one, this is someone who is unavailable, undisclosed, who cannot be or has not been approached, even God himself. And if God doesn't want to be approached, if God says, I'm going to hide myself from you, well, that's a pretty good word to use for help, to help us understand what type of person this woman was. It's that type of a woman. She's a virgin. She's unavailable. Um, and it's a very specific woman. Notice the word in verse 14, the virgin, maybe in your translation, it says a, but there's a definite article there. The virgin, a very specific type of woman who has been available, unavailable. And that's the type of woman who has not had any history of physical relationship. Now notice and lock in with me, folks, this is shouting material. Look at this in verse 14. Behold the virgin. What's the next phrase? What does it say? 
shall conceive. Is that what you have, right? The virgin shall conceive. Incredibly important. It sounds like it's a verb. It sounds like uh, there is action going on or going to be going on. It's not a verb. And write this down. Take note of this. It's an adjective in the feminine gender. It is not saying that um, uh, she, the, the prophet is not saying I am witnessing her conceiving or I'm going to witness that in the vision. It's not a verb. It's an adjective. It is describing her condition. You'll follow that? He is looking down 700 years through history, through the, through the eyes and, and the mechanism of a prophet, of one who is giving prophecy. And he is describing a virgin who is before his eyes pregnant. And so, in other words, he's saying, behold, the Lord is going to give you a sign, the pregnant virgin. You say it's 700 years into the future. How could that be? How could Isaiah have seen this? Prophetically, seeing through the eyes and the mind of a prophet, God gave him this vision that he saw before him a pregnant virgin. It's a, an adjective. It is describing who she is. And then it says, notice, behold, this particular pregnant virgin is going to bear a son. Now that sounds future tense, doesn't it? In the English, it sounds like it's going to happen sometime um, out there. But during his vision, even though it was 700 years in the, uh, before it actually did happen, in the mind's eye of Isaiah, he was um, uh, given this, pr- this vision of this pregnant virgin who was delivering right then. It's not future tense, it's present tense. And that's critically important. So in the mind of Isaiah... He is given this vision and this sign instantly from the Lord gives him this sign. And he is looking 700 years into the future. But what he is seeing right now is a pregnant virgin ready to deliver. Here she goes. That's the mechanism, the how of how this will of of this actually taking place. The significance is, young people, it's not just a virgin conception as amazing as that is, it's a virgin birth. It's a virgin birth. She is undisclosed. She is unavailable in the eyes of the prophet 700 years ahead of time. She's never known a man and she is delivering right now this baby boy. The prophet's blown away. What a sign. Only God could have done this. It's specific prophecy about God becoming man. Professor at Cedarville College, George Lawyer, Lawler wrote, this is one of the most remarkable grammatical structures in all of the Holy Scriptures. Now that's a statement right there. The only conclusion which can possibly be drawn is that what God has set forth here is the announcement of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is not a reference to the one and only miraculous event of its kind in all of history, the only virgin birth that has ever occurred or ever will occur, then it is an inexplicable fantasy of contradiction and deceit. This professor is saying, if this isn't a prophecy 700 years ahead of time of God becoming man through a virgin who was delivering, then it's nonsense. 
because it wouldn't be God giving it. It wouldn't be a sign. It'd be nonsense. Um, and it would, uh, uh, couldn't happen because it would violate all the rules of science, procreation, and the rest. Folks, lost friend, if you happened in here and you are listening to this, what does this tell you? This tells you, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. This says that Christmas is significant and it's not enough just to tip your hat and to say, oh, Merry Christmas or throw some money in the Salvation Army bucket or something or feel good about something or, or want to give gifts. No, this is an issue of the Lordship of Christ and who he is and what he has done. And what will you do with that? Specific prophecies, meditations on the incarnation of Christ, who he is, what he has done. Now, you college students, you're going to have liberal Christ denying, Bible hating professors who are going to offer a little cute comment. Possibly. They'll probably just say it off the cuff, won't, won't actually labor over it since. Their foolishness would be exposed. But they may say, well, yeah, but we understand Mary could have experienced parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis, which is a real scientific phenomena in mammals. That is the spontaneous development of an unfertilized egg. She could have had an available ovum. She was of age. And through parthenogenesis, there could have been the spontaneous development Unfertilized of that particular egg within the realm of possibility as almost infinite as it is. A stiff necked Christ denier Bible hater might offer such foolishness and say that's what happened. When you could quickly come back and say, oh, yes, professor. Even though the chances of parthenogenesis taking place in a human are multiplied millions to one, I'll grant you, for the sake of scientific argument, that it could happen. The glaring problem, though, is, by definition, parthenogenesis would be female. Case closed, you infidel. You know, you wouldn't add that to it. <laughs> you see, the foolishness of man in trying to compete with the wisdom of God, I would counsel you to embrace the wisdom of God from a humble heart and to yield to him and to say, yes, Lord, whatever you want. They'll call his name Emmanuel right there in verse 14. They knew what that meant. It meant God with us. This pregnant virgin delivering before my eyes in this prophecy is delivering no one other than Emmanuel. God with us. And it's going to take place in Bethlehem. And it's the one who's, who's the ancient of days. And it's going to be the one and the only one who can crush the head of evil. The Spirit of God moved upon the writer's to pin this specific prophecy, which was completely fulfilled. As a believer, I trust that your faith has been strengthened and deepened 
by this understanding. And as an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, if you're a church member, but you're lost, if you're indifferent, if you came in here as a rebel, or maybe you came in here putting on a good face, but you know in your heart it's not genuine. I trust that the mercy of God, that he would tug at your heart and say, just like those of old, one said, I don't have any room for him. Another said, let's get a a pagan nation to fight our battles. And someone else, what about this and what about that? Oh, that you would be the one, like Mary, who would say, be it unto me according to thy word. Lord, you've said in your word, for whosoever shall call upon your name shall be saved. Be it unto me according to your word. Lord, you've said that if I would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that you would save me. Be it unto me according to your word. Do you know him? Is the Lord Jesus living in your heart? Are you serving him? Is there a passion, a fire in your soul to live for him? Or are you relatively indifferent? Tonight, I'm going to bring a message titled The Audacity of Disobedience. I want you to be back for that as well. Where are you this morning with Christ? Lord, I'm thankful for your word, the specific prophecy, how we don't have.